join together for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your holiness among all your other attributes. It seems to be the one that you want us to reflect on even more maybe than some of the other ones, your holiness. Thank you that you, a holy God, would allow us, a very unholy people, to be able to be in your presence for all of eternity based on what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. I thank you that we've acknowledged our sin and we've acknowledged that we needed that Savior. And thank you that as we look at what's going to be taking place in the heavenly scene, and we talk about the church, we talk about who makes up that church, it's those who have been bought with a price by the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. So it's in his name we pray now. Amen. Let's turn together to Revelation chapter 4. I have a question tonight. Does the church go through the tribulation? And for some, you might say, who cares? But if I remind you who the church is, then everybody cares because the church is made up of not people from any particular church like ours or any denomination around the world. The church is true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so really the question is asking, do those who are genuine believers in Christ go through the awful seven-year tribulation period that's described in the Scriptures? And that's the question that we hope to answer tonight. First, let's get a little context as we go to Revelation chapter 4. <clears throat> we've spent a little time here mentioning that this is a transition chapter. We're transitioning, we believe, from earth to heaven and this is the time that in the chronology of this particular book, the book of the Revelation, the chronology of the things that are to happen after the time that we are living in now, after the church period, the church age, when the church is here. So chapter 4, verse 1, just a little review, and then we'll take us into that heavenly scene. And then we're going to withdraw from there to go back into the question, does the church go through the tribulation? After this, I looked. And remember, this is the Apostle John. He said, And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me, and that's the Lord Jesus, like a trumpet said, Come up here. And we asked the question, is this the rapture? Is this actually an individual being translated, being taken into heaven at that time? And I certainly believe that it is. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once... And remember, the rapture is immediately, it's in the twinkling of an eye, not even the blinking of an eye, but it's in the twinkling of an eye. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there were, excuse me, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. 
And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So much more in that heavenly scene that the Apostle John is invited to come up here at once. And so last Sunday evening, I mentioned that according to the way the sequence of events is recorded in the book of the Revelation, the church is conspicuous by its presence in the first three chapters of Revelation. In fact, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 are letters to the seven churches, and we see the church mentioned in chapter 1 a couple of times as well. Conspicuous by its presence in the first three chapters and conspicuous by its absence in the chapters that deal with that seven-year tribulation period. But then the church becomes conspicuous again after the tribulation is over when we get to chapter 19 when the church appears as the bride of Christ. I concluded that the church will not have to go through the tribulation, that the church will be safely in heaven with the Lord Jesus, having been raptured taken up to meet him just as the promise is in the scriptures. Just as Jesus promised, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me so that you can be with me forever. And he talked about preparing a place for us in order to do that. Now, that view that the Lord Jesus will take us up before the tribulation has a name. It's called the pre-tribulation rapture. Now, you might suppose maybe there are some other views as well, and there are. I've often been asked why I believe the pre-tribulation rapture view. Now, please understand what I'm about to say. There are conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing, scholarly brothers and sisters in Christ who are a whole lot smarter than I am who believe that the rapture is going to occur at a later point than I do. I believe that all the believers are going to be taken up together in the air to meet the Lord Jesus before the tribulation, but there are others who place the time later. The rapture will occur later in the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation. There are at least four other time periods that we can note. And uh, let uh, let me illustrate, though, first of all, here before us, As we're talking about the pre-tribulation rapture, you can see here, this is the time period coming under here in the brown. This is the seven-year tribulation. As the book of Revelation unfolds, there will be seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, all numbered in this by seven. The rapture would occur here. Then the tribulation would occur here. We're not in it. The church is up in heaven. Then we have, after that seven years, we have the return of Christ in glory. He comes with his saints then, and we see these as two distinctive events. We call them the rapture, and we call them the return. There are others who see it a little bit differently, and those who see it a little bit differently will take a mid-tribulation rapture view, some of them. And that is that we only go through three and a half years of the tribulation, and it won't be the worst part of the tribulation, the last three and a half will be much worse. So there are some who are mid-tribulation rapturists. There are some who are post-tribulation rapture individuals. They believe Jesus will return for his saints after the entire tribulation period. That is probably the majority view of the church at large, and by that I mean the visible church. 
that of the Roman and Greek Catholic Church, the liberal church. To them, the rapture and the second coming, or the rapture and the return, as I showed on the screen just a moment ago, are one and the same event, and they take place after the tribulation period. There is another view. It's not that old. This is called the pre-wrath rapture view. It was espoused by Marv Rosenthal, formerly with Friends of Israel. He places the rapture at about five and a half years after the tribulation begins. And there is another view. You don't see a lot of this, but it's called the partial rapture view. Only those who are really ready. There is an elite group of people who will go up at the beginning of the tribulation. The rest of us, I'm not including myself, I wouldn't be in the elite group, I'm sure. But the rest of us will um, be raptured after we go through the tribulation. So some people go at the beginning and some people do not. Those are the, the four most prominent views. Now, once again... If you glance up at the screen, if you're able to see this, and if you're not able to see it, I'll try to explain it in a, in a clear manner. But you can see off to the left here the pre-tribulation rapture position. The rapture is pictured at the beginning of these seven years. These seven years are identified here as the wrath of God. That's an important point, so, so stay hold of that. The wrath of God, we're not going to be here for the wrath of God. Mid-tribulation rapture position, halfway through, the wrath of God takes place the last three and a half years, according to that view. Post-tribulation rapture, we go all the way to the end. You can see where the rapture is going to be, and the rapture and the return are one and the same. Pre-wrath rapture, five and a half years, somewhere in this area, uh, it's not exactly pictured for us. So three and a half years, sometimes referred to as the beginning of birth pangs, Second three and a half years, sometimes referred to as the Great Tribulation by some, uh, but it's seven years of tribulation. And let me ask you a question. Of all the views that we've espoused so far, whose do you hope is right? I hope the pre-tribulation rapture is the one that is right. That's not why I believe it, though. I believe it based on other things, not just because of wishful thinking. So what I'd like to encourage all of us to do is to listen to some of the views, some of the reasons why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. But just before we do that, let me mention this. Should we be upset and concerned that there are different opinions among Christians about this issue? Should that bother us? Is that something that maybe you're sitting there saying, you know what? He said that there are others who believe the scriptures who are evangelical, who are conservative, and they believe differently. Should that bother us? And my answer to that is, no, it shouldn't bother us. I think there are some good reasons for that, some some good things we can take from that. One of them is that it can strengthen our love for one another. We can hold different opinions about some things that may not be as crystal clear as a thou shalt not in the scriptures. We can do that, and we can still love each other. And these... The the fact that we don't agree on all of these things proves we can disagree without being disagreeable. We can be known as disciples because of the way we love one another. We don't just turn off somebody because they don't agree with us. Somebody's a mid-trib and we're a pre-trib, therefore we can no longer love that person or have fellowship with that person. That's not the case at all. We love through those issues. Also, it helps us to rejoice in the many essential doctrines with which there is full agreement. We agree about lots of other things with these conservative evangelical Christians who may hold a little bit of a different view here, 
but we believe in salvation by faith in Christ and Christ alone and the inerrancy of Scripture and the Trinity. And you go through the doctrines. We believe so many things that are the same. And we do depart a little bit in this one. And also, I think this is a great reason why it's good that we have differences of opinions on some of these issues because it motivates us to a deeper study of God's Word because that's where the answers are. The answers are not going to be in debates that we might have with each other, but in getting into the Scriptures, reading it for ourselves, asking God's Holy Spirit to reveal to us what He wants us to have from that. So let me put this another way. One's view on the timing of the rapture is not a litmus test of orthodoxy. It's not something that should provoke arguments or dissension. Any discussion should be entered into and left with humility and tolerance. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? Any discussion that we enter into and any discussion that we leave with anybody in this should be entered into with humility and tolerance. And so the question, are there any other reasons why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture other than what I shared last Sunday night? And that was that when we get into Revelation 4, there is a transition, there is an invitation to come up, there is a trumpet sound. All of these things are what we read about in 1 Corinthians in 1 Thessalonians, when the rapture is given to us in detail. But yes, there are other reasons. And um, I'd like to describe this tribulation period in some broad brush strokes. First of all, if you're not familiar with the seven years tribulation, it will be the most horrible thing that the world has ever known. It is unparalleled according to the Scriptures. Think about the worst that has taken place with natural phenomenon and the people against people as well. Nothing stacks up against it. It will be a literal seven-year period. Sometimes it's referred to as the 70th week of Daniel, and we'll refer to that later in our study, not tonight. But it'll be seven years of broken promises, wars and rumors of wars, Jews returning to their own land, earthquakes, pestilence, famine, unbelief, the growth of an apostate false church, ecumenism, where everybody's trying to gather for one world church, a one world government, the rule of the Antichrist, also known as the beast, the witness of 144,000 marked individuals. There will also be the mark of that beast, that sometimes in popular literature we hear about that, the 666 and the mark of the beast, that will take place. Terrible calamities in nature, millions upon millions of people being killed, judgment after judgment, and again, I said unparalleled in the course of humanity. Nothing like that. Let me ask a question again. How many of you hope that the pre-tribulation rapture view is correct? I'll, I'll give you another chance on that one in case you didn't raise your hand the first time. It's an awful time. Everyone hopes that the pre-trib rapture view is right. Let me ask a question, though. Does the timing of the rapture relative to the tribulation make any difference at all? And the difference is, do I need to be ready for Christ, and should I be looking for him? Or do I need to get ready for Antichrist to come? If I want to get ready for Antichrist to come, I better start preparing in some ways other than I'm used to doing, stockpiling, 
food, making sure I've got a nice bomb shelter and protection against all kinds of warfare because if the next thing that's happening is Antichrist is coming and tribulation is coming, and if that's what I have to look forward to, my preparation would be in that direction rather than in the direction that it is now. And so let's look at some reasons why we can believe with confidence in a pre-tribulation rapture. The church is seen in heaven during the tribulation. I mentioned that last week, and I told you that I would give you some evidence for it, some more evidence than I did last time. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, if you take a look there, we read that a few moments ago, but in Revelation 4, 4, here's what it says. It says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. Keep them in your mind's eye, the 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And so we've got this picture in Revelation 4, verse 4. We're now in a heavenly scene. We've left the earth. John has been invited to come up into heaven, and he's actualizing what's taking place or a vision. Nobody's quite sure exactly what's going on there. But surrounding the throne, 24 other thrones, 24 elders seated on those thrones. An important question is, who are these elders? We believe them to be a representative group of some larger group. And there are a lot of representative groups that are, that are going to be there in heaven. Some see them as an order of holy angels. I don't. Since angels don't have a concept of age, the term elder would seem to be misapplied if it's granted to them. But I believe that they are representatives of the church. They can't represent Israel. Israel's judgment will come later during the tribulation. So if we can rule out angels and if we can rule out Israel, there aren't too many other groups that would be represented in heaven that would make sense other than the church. They sat on thrones, we're told. They were reigning with Christ. Nowhere do we find angels pictured sitting on thrones or ruling or reigning, but the church is repeatedly promised a place of reigning with Jesus. We see this all over. They're dressed in white. may be very significant too, the clothing of the redeemed church. If you want to turn ahead to Revelation chapter 19, uh, verses 8 and 14, we see the bride of Christ. We see the, the white linen garments that are pictured there. If we go back to the promise to those believers at Sardis, a few names will walk with me, Jesus said, in white. The ones who haven't soiled their garments. They're pictured with white linen. Even the church of Laodicea, to the believers who may emerge from that lukewarm church, the Lord Jesus said to them, buy from me white garments that you may be clothed. So we're starting to put together a little bit of a picture here. Those who are ruling in heaven, those who are dressed in white, uh, those who have ruled out the angels and have ruled out Israel. And there's, there's more. They have crowns on their heads. There are a couple of words for crowns in the New Testament. This is not the Greek word diadema. That's why I have it crossed out on the screen. Uh, this is not that type of crown. That would be the crown of a king. It is Stephanos in the Greek language, which is the crown of a victor, one who has overcome, one who has conquered the promise that was given all through chapters 2 and 3 to those who would 
conquer till the end. And so the crowns consistently are presented as rewards for the faithful in the church. Never do we see crowns for angels. The word elder itself is a word that has significance for the church. We've been seeing that in some of our studies on Sunday mornings. It is a representative office. The word presbruteroi is never used to refer to angels, but to those who are part of the church. 24 of them. 24 of them. 24 is a symbolic or representative number. The priesthood of Israel was divided into 24 sections. And of all the groups of the redeemed, only the church is a priesthood. According to First Peter and Revelation 1.6, the church is a priesthood. Again, some would say the 24 elders may be Old Testament saints, maybe from Israel. But according to Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, that cannot be because these people are going to be singing praises and they're identified as coming from basically every group that you can imagine, every tribe, every people, every language, every nation. It can't be limited to just the saints of the Old Testament time because they would have been from uh, almost exclusively from the Jewish people. The church is seen here, then glorified, crowned, enthroned in heaven before the seven-sealed scroll is opened in chapter 5, before the tribulation begins in chapter 6. So if the church is seen in John's vision of heaven in Revelation 4, and if the tribulation doesn't start until chapter 6, the church can't go through the tribulation. We've been in heaven for 25 verses already. Okay, if you can, if you can picture what I'm saying by that. We're already there safely at the beginning of chapter 4 when chapter 6 starts and the Holocaust and everything that's going on there begins. We're not going to be there. Second reason why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, that is that the church is not destined to experience God's wrath. The church is not appointed. Believers in Christ are not appointed to experience God's wrath. There are many scriptures Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? It is not God's policy for believers to have to go through his wrath. That wrath has already been taken care of. It was exercised on the person of the Lord Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. It says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and, now verse 10, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. To wait for his Son from heaven. The timing is talking about end times, delivering us from the wrath to come. The church is not destined to experience God's wrath. Second Peter chapter, excuse me, let me go go to First Thessalonians first. First Thessalonians five nine, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And second Peter chapter two verse nine. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. That word from is the Greek word ek. We're going to see in just a moment that it means out of. So we see a picture here. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly out of trials. 
That's on the heels of a reference being made to Noah and Lot. And then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. There are two groups. There are the godly, the righteous. They're not going to have to go through this punishment. Excuse me. But those who are not believers are going to have to do that. Now, the tribulation period is described in the scriptures as the great day of God's wrath. And we see God's wrath mentioned in the book of Revelation. All the times that you can picture on the screen, if you can't see those references, there are nine times in the book of Revelation that the tribulation period is referred to as a manifestation of the wrath of God. I'll show you why that's important in just a moment. But let me give you a couple of examples. We won't look at all nine of them. But in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, if you can take a look at that with me. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 16, this is now in the tribulation. The seals, seven seals are being opened. They are the first of the the, the three large groups of punishments that are coming. And here, the kings of the earth, the great powerful ones, the generals, and all of those are now hiding themselves in caves and in the rocks and in the mountains. It is not a good scene. Verse 16 says, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The one seated on the throne was God the Father. We'll see that when we study this further. And the Lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ. But hide us from the wrath. These are not believers who are asking to be hidden from God and the Lord Jesus. These are unbelievers who are asking that they themselves might be hidden from that. Uh, Let's look at chapter 11 and verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And that's being the elders are addressing. It says they're, they're on their faces before God, giving thanks to him. And they're saying this, the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both great and small and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. If we went through the other seven of those nine verses about the wrath of God, we continue to see if anything else, the book of Revelation is a time when the wrath of God is being exercised on those who were disobedient to him, to those who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons I say that is because there is a very respected, well-respected man who wrote this a number of years ago now. Harold Ockengay is an individual who was president of um, Gordon College. He is a post-tribulationist. He believes that the rapture will take place after the tribulation. And yet unwittingly in his quote here, he is going to make a strong case in favor of pre-tribulation rapture rather than post-tribulation rapture. And here's what he said. He said, The church will endure the wrath of men, but will not suffer the wrath of God. Pre-tribulation rapturists identify the tribulation with the wrath of God. If this can be proved, we must believe that the church will be taken out of the world before the tribulation, for there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. If it can be proved... We've got nine verses that say exactly what he says. If that can be proven, 
then we've got to go with the pre-tribulation rapture view. I agree with him that we do have to, and that's one of the reasons why I do. There's no reason for the church to go through the tribulation. All that wrath that God thought was necessary for us has been dumped on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. To put the church through the tribulation is to depreciate what Jesus took us away from. God's wrath is the destiny of unbelievers and Israel, unbelieving part of Israel, but not the church. A writer who does a lot of writing in end times theology, Paul Feinberg, some of you may know that name, he has this to say, this exemption from wrath does not mean that the church will never experience trial, persecution, or suffering. To use the terminology of the songwriter, the church has not been promised that she will be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease. The world and Satan have never been friends of God and his church. The New Testament makes it clear that we should expect trial and suffering, particularly if we live righteously. Lots of scripture for that. This promise, then, is not to result in softness. Rather, hardness in light of trials is enjoined everywhere in the New Testament. The Christian life is pictured as a battle and as an athletic contest requiring discipline and endurance. So, yes, we will have trials. We will have persecution in this world, but we will not have the great wrath of God in those seven terrible years of tribulation. You may recall when we were studying back in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, the letter to the church at Philadelphia. We saw a verse, verse 10, and if you'll turn there with me, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. It was kind of an odd promise in the middle of that letter, and it had far-reaching implications well beyond just one church at that particular time. And you'll see why. Let's look again at verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And you may recall that that promise to Philadelphia, we believe Philadelphia-type Christians, not just those in that one church at that one time, because nothing happened to the whole world then. Something will be happening to the whole world during the tribulation period. Philadelphia-type Christians were promised to be kept out of a particular trial that involved the whole world to test those who live on the earth. All through the book of Revelation, the expression, those who live on the earth or the inhabitants of the earth, is a specific reference to those who are unbelievers. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now you notice in verse 10, the word that he gave them, I will keep you from the hour of trial. That is that word I referred to earlier, the word ek, which means out of. It means out of every time that it is used. Occasionally you'll see somebody that says that it means through, but there are better Greek words, dia, or en, which would mean through. Ek is used more than 800 times in the New Testament. And one scholar noted this, there is only one instance when it is used to mean anything other than out of. So not kept through the tribulation, but kept out of 
the tribulation. Just as God knows how to keep people like the righteous lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah, he didn't leave them in Sodom and Gomorrah. He took them out, and he's going to take believers out as well. A few examples. I, I mentioned that there are numerous instances, 800 or more. A few examples. Out of Egypt have I called my son in Matthew 2.15. Take the plank out of your own eye. Uh, not take the plank through your eye. It would be out of your eye. In Revelation 3.16, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. He's not talking about swishing or rinsing. He's talking about spitting out of the mouth. That's what that word ek means. Fourth reason, the church is looking for Jesus, not for signs. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. That follows verses 13 through 17, which describe the rapture in great detail. We saw that last week. But 1 Thessalonians 4, 18 says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Where is the encouragement if I'm looking for the tribulation? Not for Jesus. There is no encouragement then. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, remember that blessed hope. We're waiting for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How can it be a blessed hope if I'm looking for the tribulation? Where's the encouragement? Where's the blessing if the next thing I'm going to see is Antichrist revealing himself in the midst of all of these horrible judgments? I don't know about you, but I want to look for Jesus, not that Antichrist. We saw last time the hope of Jesus' return is a purifying hope. It's what it says in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. If Jesus' return is imminent, if he could come back at any moment, the purifying hope here means so much more. Beloved, it says we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What a great thought, motivation, incentive for purity to know that at any moment Jesus could come back and he could find me doing something maybe I don't want him to find me doing or viewing something I don't want him to find me viewing. That purifying hope makes a whole lot more sense and, and is something that's far more significant if Jesus comes back at any moment rather than at the end of seven years that we can predict. We know some events that are going to happen in the tribulation. We know a peace treaty will be signed with Israel. We know that it will be broken. We know If we know that and we see this man making a treaty with Jerusalem that he breaks in the middle of a, a, a after three-year period, uh, we understand, okay, I better get ready now for Jesus to come because these signs are here. If Jesus' return cannot occur until the tribulation occurs, his return is no longer imminent. We can know when he returns by paying attention to the signs. And uh, we don't want to be looking for those signs. We don't want to be here when those signs take place. We want to already be gone. What happens to Matthew twenty-four forty-two? Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. That's talking about imminency. Or Matthew twenty four forty four. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Or what happens to Acts 1, 7, where Jesus said, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own 
authority. If we're following along and we begin to see some of those signs of the tribulation and we realize, oh, we're in it, we didn't want to be in it, uh, there's no imminency of Christ's return. So that's the point that is being made there. I think I'm going to stop there now. I didn't finish your outline, uh, but I've got a lot more to go. And so I'm going to stop right now, and we'll pick that up, Lord willing, next time, and we'll move a little bit further ahead as well. I, I offer this to you because if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are part of the church, you are part of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not have to face seven horrible years of tribulation The next thing on the calendar will be for Jesus to come and take us up in the air to be with him forever. And then encourage one another with those words. Those are encouraging words. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that a study of this drives us further into your word because we want to make sure that we're rightly dividing your truth We don't want to be saying things that could be misleading. We don't want to be saying things because it's wishful thinking. We don't want to be argumentative for the sake of arguing. But it seems clear that when we know you, your character, your nature, and we see your word, and we see these promises that are here, that we can bank on them and we can trust them. So I pray that you would help us to be able to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.